HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by MOFAD, the Museum of Food and Drink, inspiring public curiosity about food. Learn more at mofad.org. This week on Meet and Three, we bring you stories about the coldest, darkest season. We start in a California vineyard. It's cold, but it's wet, and things are still alive. There's a lot of life in this soil. We explore two frontiers of cocktail culture— luxury ice, and the rise of non-alcoholic drinks. The rocks traditionally becomes 25% of your drink's volume, and as such, it imparts smells and tastes. And we investigate the risks facing New York City delivery workers during the harsh winter. In the wintertime, after two hours of biking, it's quite easy, actually, for the bikes to sting upside down or slips or slide. Tune in to this week's episode of Meat and Three, that's M-E-A-T plus sign T-H-R-E-E, for some food for thought to sustain you through the dead of winter. Subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to The Line. I'm your host, Eli Sussman. Thanks for joining us. Today, my guest is Dennis No. He's the chef and owner of Diandi, a Vietnamese restaurant in Greenpoint, Brooklyn. Dennis is a Houston native, and he fell in love with cooking while on a sabbatical from being an information systems consultant, which maybe we'll find out during the show what whatever that is. Throughout the course of his culinary career, Dennis has helped open numerous Vietnamese restaurants in New York City, including An Choi, Lucy's Vietnamese kitchen, Hanoi House, and he also founded Lone Star Empire, a Texas-style smoked brisket operation, which is located at Smorgasbord. Diandi, which means let's go eat in Vietnamese, has been gathering acclaim and excitement since it opened and has quickly cemented itself as both a destination and a neighborhood restaurant. Today, we'll discuss what it's like to open up a very big restaurant, brisket, both pho style and Texas barbecue style, and of course, the trials and tribulations of being a restaurant operator in New York. Dennis, welcome to the line. Thank you, Eli. So I want to start at uh, at the beginning with uh, your childhood in Houston. Houston has one of the largest Vietnamese populations in the United States. What was your childhood like growing up there? And uh, and were you born there? And uh, were your parents born there? Or did they come to the United States as adults? My parents came over in their 20s, and they ended up in Austin, Texas. And my mom went to school in Austin, Texas. Um, at some point after she graduated, we ended up moving down to Houston. 
I was born in Austin, but um, my formative years were spent in Houston. So growing up in Houston, spending a lot of time in, the, uh, in Little Saigon, um, that strip, which when I was growing up was downtown Houston, but now has kind of evolved into the Bel Air area. So, and it's much, much larger than it was when I was growing up. So was really blessed to grow up um, around a very large Vietnamese community, um, was very introduced to Vietnamese restaurants at a very early age, um, and just really fell in love with the food and cuisine and the culture um, at an early age, and just now really trying to um, promote that culture here in New York City. Was there a push-pull with your parents growing up between uh, a traditional or a more traditional Vietnamese household with uh, traditions, food consumption, and also you lived in a sprawling metropolis in the United States, Houston, which has a very diverse uh, representation. Were you trying to be kind of like the American teenager or um, was it, a, was it sort of a blend? Um, definitely was a blend. Um, yeah, you're right. Houston, I think one is the, is one of the most diverse cities now. Um, you know, definitely growing up as a teenager, um, wanting to rebel against everything that was around me. So doing the exact opposite of what my parents said. Um, I think they quickly realized they were going to lose this battle. So they kind of let it be kind of a blend of both, both worlds. And, um, I think that that was a smart move on their part. We were just terrible, terrible children. So, um, what do you mean by that? Like, were you guys just troublemakers through and through, or you know, I think we were. I was a pretty poor student, um, very poor student. And you know, for an Asian, well, any any parent, but you know, particularly for an Asian family, school being very important, um, did not excel in that um, growing up. Um, so that was a bit challenging, trying to find my way. Um, you know, I you know I give a lot of credit to my mom and dad. They had to put up with quite a bit um, from myself, just particularly. So, what does that look like as you're trying to find your way during those formative years when every kid turns into a teenager and you just don't know where you fit in, basically anywhere? Did food cooking did it provide any framework to you at that young of an age, or did that that came much later? Yeah, you know, so for me, um, I, I wish I grew up in a situation where um, I found my passion early on. Uh, that definitely wasn't the case for me. Um, so I always think it's an interesting story to tell other people of my age and people that are switching mid-careers. This was something that I fell into when I was in my 30s. Um, and, you know, like going back to what you said, I, you know, I was an information systems consultant for a long time, and I still don't know what that means. And I, and I did that for six years. Yeah, I was hoping you could shed some light on what that consists of. So is that is that on the technical side? Or are you on the, the human placement side? What does that mean? I, I wore a lot of hats when I was working in consulting and um, never really sure what I was getting at. Um, you know, I think a lot of the comments about the consultants, you know, you just end up being a jack of all trades with no real skill. At least that was my career path. Um, and, you know, I never really had an interest in food growing up either. I was actually a very picky eater. Um, so, you know, I'm not really sure where like this all kind of came into place for myself, but I knew after working in my desk job for, you know, six years um, that th it wasn't for me. And, you know, fortunately at the time they offered a sabbatical. So, I, you know, after a certain amount of time, I was, a take, I was able to take three months off. And then um, always, ha for whatever reason, I, you know, restaurant culture, um, you know, this was around the time when Bourdain just released his book, A Cook's Tour, and then that was being uh, romanticized and, um, that, you know, that definitely had a big part of my interest in, in, the, in hospitality because it was an industry I never worked in growing up. 
um, you know, my, my jobs in college weren't in, in, you know, in a restaurant. So I had no experience with that culture. And I remember reading that book and being slightly interested uh, in enough to take a sabbatical and then uh, wash dishes at a restaurant here in Williamsburg. So when you went to college, what did you get your degree in that kind of led you into this consulting style of career? Right. And, and then also when you took your sabbatical, you were in New York. So was your entire career in New York, your professional career here? No, it wasn't. Um, so there actually is a major called management information systems. And that is what I majored in. You know, like really it ends up being about um, just how do you use com- how do you use systems and computers to accomplish tasks in big organizations, organizational tasks. So um, it's kind of like half computer programming, half business classes. Um, but to answer your question, you know, so as a consultant, you travel a lot. I was on the road um, nine months out of the year, four days out of the week, I'd be traveling somewhere. Uh, my clients were all up in the Northeast. I was working in financial services at the time. So I was flying up to Toronto specifically and then traveling back home to Houston every week. A lot of times you did not have to go back home to your home, your home city. You could just travel wherever you wanted. So I would inevitably fly to New York quite a bit being in Toronto and spending a lot of time here. Realized quickly that um, I really wanted to be here, never, never having lived outside of Texas. So made the move up here. And that's when I just kind of started falling in love with the restaurant industry and the hospitality. Eating out here was totally different than eating out back home. Um, you know, Texas, you have to drive everywhere. Here, um, you know, the culture of being able to walk or take a cab, you got to remember this before Uber, it really changes your dining experience. I don't have to necessarily start worrying about how much I'm consuming or drinking. Um, at dinner. Whereas in Houston, you, that was always in the back of your head of like, oh man, how am I going to get home? Mm-hmm. You're not calling cabs. So, um, you know, just being up here at that time, it was kind of just a magical time for myself. And just a lot of things fell into line. I was just, you know, I think that's one of the things I love about New York, um, putting yourself out there. Um, if you really want something to happen, you can kind of almost will it into existence in terms of like, really want something to happen if you're just really pushing yourself and you're always thinking about it and always trying to get yourself to that goal, you end up meeting the right people at the right time. And I don't think necessarily that's just luck. That's just putting yourself in a good position. And I really have New York to thank for, for that and helping me kind of push me along in my career. But people must have thought that you, there was just some amount of insanity to your plan, which was, oh, I've got a great career. I'm traveling quite a bit. I have financial stability to do these things. And I think I'll take some time off and maybe I'll wash dishes for a while at a restaurant. Yeah, I remember my manager uh, looking at me incredulously when I told him what I was going to do and was like, are you sure you really want to do this? This this does not make any sense. My parents were very upset for a long time. Um, it's only very recently that they've kind of come around um, about my career choice. Um, yeah. So it, where, where did you go and wash dishes in Williamsburg? So I remember reading about this Vietnamese guy opening up a Vietnamese restaurant on North Barry and Ninth. Um, and this is early 2000. It was called Silent H. So um, I remember reading on Eater that this guy was opening up. And I was like, oh, man, I'd love to meet this guy. He's, he seems like he's doing something very interesting in Vietnamese food. I've never cooked, but, you know, obviously very passionate about Vietnamese food. Um, and then, like I said, I, I don't remember the circumstances of it specifically, but we somehow ended up at a party together and not knowing each other, and somehow someone connected us together, and we ended up having a smoke outside, and I got to meet this guy that I had just been reading about a couple weeks previously, and um, I just told him, hey, man, I'm, 
really interested in what you're doing. Um, never cooked in a restaurant, no, have zero experience, but um, let me come wash dishes. You know, that's what I read. If, you know, nobody's going to turn down free work. That was, you know, and as somebody in their 30s, I wasn't necessarily looking to go back to, to go to cooking school either. Um, I figured this was my quickest path, my most direct path, if I just offered up my time. How does a picky kid from Houston who has a professional career decide that this is what they might want to do? You literally could have done anything, right? You could have said, I think I want to try to figure out how to work on a cruise ship, a race car driver, like literally anything you knew you wanted to switch. What was that either piece of information or that bite of food or that thing that you saw that really turned the dial for you and said, I think I'm I think I've got to be involved in, in restaurants and hospitality somehow. Sure. Um, well, you know, it starts with, you know, just being very dissatisfied in a desk job. I think a lot of people can understand that 100%. Um, you know, and I was in that situation of just like, I don't see where this is going. I can't imagine I'm going to spend the rest of my life doing this. Um, and the time when I was living in New York, you know, I was living in the East Village, um, just really enjoying the the culture around restaurants here. And I remember um, Sambar opening up at the time. They were right down the block from me and they started in the late night stuff where Tian Ho was cooking. And I remember being a diner there and you could see Dave Chang running around yelling at all the cooks. And at the time, not knowing, you know, just where this was going to go. But I just remember watching the entire dance around me and how exciting that was and the food that they were putting out and just, I just really fell in love then and there. Just like, man, I, this seems like so much fun. Literally, little did I realize how much work was involved. Um, but that, that, I think a lot of people fall in love with that, just that whole idea of seeing the front but not knowing about the, the stuff that happens in the back. Yeah, our trajectory is very similar. I used to sit at a desk. I saw the show. I wanted to be in the show. And then I didn't realize how much yeah. work goes into yeah, the yeah. show <laughs> on the on the back end in the back of house. So yeah. you're back there washing dishes. How long did it take? Was it at that restaurant that you had your first ability to work the line to maybe do some prep to get involved with food in a more real, concrete way? Was it was it after the three month period? No, it was during that time. You know, to you know. To his credit, you know, uh, Vin, um, he was the owner of the of Silent H. He um, he really took a shot on me, and you know, I own, I washed dishes kind of part time for a little bit, and then you know, he started just giving me little tasks to do, little prep tasks um, during the day. It was a bun me shop, so I got a little exposure about with food handling, you know, making sandwiches, and then you know, it was a small, you know, it was a small business, um, so. You kind of had to wear a lot of different hats, and you know he didn't have a huge staff, so you know inevitably something happened where he needed an extra set of hands doing something, and he pulled me in. And you know after a while, you start working your way around different stations and getting exposed to different things, and then you know it. I really, you know, I really um, feel you know I think that's really there where it's like yeah, I, I really enjoy doing this. I really like working my hands. I like being on my feet all day. I like the satisfaction of working a. A very long day and you know the enjoyment afterwards of having a drink or commiserating with your your fellow co-workers about how the service went um it was just a different feeling that i had that i had never experienced previously um and definitely didn't experience working at a desk job do you remember uh when you quit your other job 
Like, does it vividly stick out in your mind how you did it and how you felt immediately afterwards? Yeah, you know, I so I finished the three months, finished the sabbatical, decided to go back to work to save some more money. Um, you know, I quickly also realized that the difference in pay scale and, I, you know, living in New York, it's not cheap. So, you know, I, I made sure I had a plan, made sure that I knew I was going to go back, save some money for a bit and, and see and, and at least give myself a cushion where I could let this kind of play out and see what's going to happen. You know, I gave myself like about a year. And if um, so, I went back and worked for like, I think, another nine months. And then I gave my notice and then. And then left. I think they saw the writing on the wall as well. I didn't really tell anybody what was going on, but you know, it was I was mentally checked out. I was already just super you, geared about like you office spaced it a little bit, yeah, a little showing bit. up at ten yep. with uh, <laughs> Hawaiian shirt on, just not really mentally involved in in yeah. the current job. So when you transition into your restaurant career, do you end up at at An Choi right away? Do you hook up with your current business partner sort of right away, or does that come later on? So, you know, just another fortune, you know, fortunate situation. I went back to Silent H. I worked there for a bit. Um, and then I met my current partner, Tuan, just randomly out in New York City again and having drinks somewhere. I think we were on a rooftop in, in, in Williamsburg somewhere before all the towers were up. And you could still see the, the water from a couple, a couple blocks back. And um, I remember sharing a drink from my flask with, with Tuan. And he told me he was opening a restaurant and it gets kind of blurry there, but he finds out I cook and then we just kind of go back and forth. And um, it took about, you know, I think like a year to get Anchoy off the ground. But just like another one of those situations, I was just working really hard at the time, trying to meet people, putting myself out there and then um, just got really lucky again and uh, met, met, met somebody that was opening another restaurant. So don't be don't be too humble when you answer this yeah. this question. When you actually got in the kitchen and you started really digging in, did you find yourself to be just naturally talented at cooking or was it a, a longer process and did you think to yourself, I enjoy this, but I've got to dig in really hard here? Like did you have the did you have the skill sets inside you already? No, definitely did not. Um and there was a time um, during Anchoy's existence that first year. I, so, you know, getting hired to be the chef at a restaurant, I was woefully inexperienced to do that. Um, I don't think, you know, I don't think my partner realized. I don't think I realized either at the time. Um, you know, it took some very unfortunate situations to happen at, at Anchoy, some learning experiences for myself and Tuan, um, to realize just like, oh man, we're really over our heads here. Um, and, there was a there was a time I think about nine months in after like all the buzz had come down um, that I I thought to myself I don't know if I can do this I think I might have to quit and go back to my other job because I felt like the restaurant wasn't doing well I didn't have the organization or the systems in place because I never worked for anybody I kind of worked for one person and then got a chef job which was that is not the normal career path of a chef usually you're in it for a long time working under somebody, getting mentored along the way before you take on the reins of a restaurant. Um, and I just kind of got expedited. And um, it was great. I really wanted the responsibility, but I was not ready for that kind of situation yet. I think just like anybody else, I needed a mentor. And uh, fortunately, I was able to find one out of the grace of God. He just kind of like fell off, fell from the heavens um, before I decided to put my notice in. And... Um, who is He's, that? Who'd you connect with? 
That's a very long story in itself, Eli. That could be a whole other <laughs> podcast. I feel like it could be a Netflix series. But, you know, um, really shortly, he literally just walked in off the street. And um, he had a set of knives on him and he had clothes on him. And we were looking for somebody to, to help me. And we literally hired him on the spot that day. So um, he was an older gentleman. You know, it, I couldn't make this up. Um, but he was the really one, he was the one that I, I needed mentorship at the time. And I think that's a really important aspect of our industry about mentorship and growing, learning from others. Um, but yeah, when I, when I started, I, I had no clue what I was doing and I still had no clue what I was doing when we opened Anchoy. So does this, this secretive guardian angel guy, does he basically say, I've got a lot of experience, lean on me, let me show you how to run a kitchen. Let me yes. show you how to create dishes. Like yeah. he... He just appeared. <laughs> he he literally just appeared. Um, you know, really quickly. So what happened was, um, I had a mutiny on my hands from the kitchen staff. Just I because I had no idea how to run a kitchen. Mm -hmm. So event everybody quit one day on me. The entire kitchen walked out. All the support staff, everybody. Um, so we had to close for one day of service, and then we just put an ad out on Craigslist, and that's when he walked in. We had just gotten like a New York New York Times twenty five and under review at the time. And I remember there was a pickle shop next to us. And, and this guy who came in was like, oh, I was trying to go to the pickle shop. And I read about you guys in the New York Times. Why are you guys closed? And so, you know, we explained to him, you know, what happened. And then um, he's like, oh, I cook. And I was like, get, you know, get out of here. He's an older guy, too. He was in his 60s, it looked like. Mm -hmm. um, but like I said, he had a set of knives on him. He had a change of clothes. And we went down to Chinatown. And he cooked us a three-course meal. And then he started the next day, and I worked with him for, I think, the next four or five years every day. And he was the one that taught me. It wasn't even about the cooking necessarily. It was about how to organize yourself, mise en place, um, how to be a chef, how to, like, talk to others, how to treat your kitchen crew, how to set discipline, how to set rules. These are things that are all, are all very obvious. But when you're in the shit every day of just trying to, like, do service – you don't necessarily have the time to sit back and think because I, I was on the line. I was doing everything um, and how to set those things up and how important those things are to be done ahead of time, not once the, the ship has sailed. So um, very thankful for, to this individual um, who really, really got me to where I am today and my partner as well, because I'm not really sure until he's still around and they're 10 years in now if he, he doesn't show up. When everyone walks out that day, do you... Did you think to yourself, this is about them or this is about me? Like, where did the, where do you think the responsibility fell on that day when you felt that everyone? Oh, 100% left? me. Okay. Yeah, 100% me. I just mismanagement, didn't know what I was doing. Um, yeah, that, that was, it's all, that's definitely on my, that, yeah, I'm the chef. So everything always falls on you. When you reflect back on that now, is it, painful to think about that moment and embarrassing or do you feel good about it in a way that it kind of maybe turned things around no i mean it was a learning experience um i had to take those lumps you know i had to take that l there um to get where i am now i like i said and if that doesn't happen um you know if they stick around i probably would have left because i was never going to be able to get us to that next that next phase of just being a normal functioning operating restaurant um, I, you know, the things I learned in that compressed time frame um, from this individual, um, you couldn't buy that kind of information. I could have not, I could have gone to cooking school and still would have learned what I've learned during that time with this individual. So um, I'm actually very thankful that this is how it all kind of played out. Um, you know, it was the right way for, for it to work for myself.
We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, more with Chef Dennis No. episode is brought to you by MOFAD, the Museum of Food and Drink. Featuring a variety of interactive displays, MOFAD encourages eaters of all ages to be curious about food. The museum currently operates MOFAD Lab, a 5,000-square-foot experimental space in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, where Chow, making the Chinese-American restaurant, is currently on show until the end of March 2019. This exhibition celebrates the birth and evolution of Chinese-American restaurants, tracing their nearly 170-year history, and sparking conversations about food culture, immigration, and what it means to be American. It highlights the evolution timeline of Chinese-American restaurant menus, dating back to 1910, and also highlights a tasting section where participants get to enjoy tastings created by the country's most talented chefs who specialize in Chinese-American cuisine. Make sure you check out Chow while you still can. The exhibition closes at the end of March 2019. Check out MOFAD's tastings and extensive event calendar at mofad.org events. Are you enjoying this podcast? Heritage Radio Network has plenty more. I'm Damon Bolte. And I'm Souther Teague. Together we host The Speakeasy, a show where we discuss cocktails, spirits, wine, beer, tea, coffee, and all things in the liquid universe. Yeah, our guests range from bartenders and brewers, alchemists and ambassadors, roasters and regulars, hippies and home brewers, and every expert enthusiast in between. <laughs> Browse episodes of The Speakeasy wherever you listen to podcasts and on heritageradionetwork.org. Welcome back to The Line. My guest today is Chef Dennis No. He is one of the owners and the chef of Diandi, a Vietnamese restaurant in Greenpoint. The restaurant is beautiful. It's very big. I want to talk about how you and your partners found the space and how you transformed the space. I know that you had a design uh, a design team, the Ladies and Gentlemen Studios, help with, with the overall visuals, but it feels so current, but it doesn't feel overblown or overdone. I would love for you to talk about the space and how that impacts the service style and also the food and the presentation. Sure. Um, so we, you know, obviously very challenging finding spaces in New York City. Um, you know, we, we looked all around Bushwick. Didn't really think too much of this space when we when we saw it when we saw an ad for it. It was a little bit out of our price range, um, but I lived in Greenpoint previously. I really enjoyed l- living over there um, at the time, and I had noticed um, just how many other restaurants were popping up over there. I knew that there wasn't too much waterfront left to develop, so I know there, I knew there was a lot of development going on in Greenpoint. So we went to check out the space, and when I saw it, I was blown away just with how beautiful it was. It if you you know for the people that have never been to our space, um, it's a very long space. It has about seventy seats, and there's an extension in the back where is really the bulk of the restaurant, where there's skylights throughout the space. So there's a ton of natural light, and the kitchen is open. You can totally see the kitchen from the dining room, and there's natural light in there, which I knew right away. 
I'm going to push for this space because if I'm going to be here 16 hours a day, I don't want to be in a basement. So, you know, we fell in love with the space instantly. The infrastructure and the bones of the space were already there. So we didn't really have to do too much. You know, we turned it over to our partners, um, ladies and gentlemen, studio, we buoy, Michael Yurinsky from ADO. Um, we're very blessed to have a lot of talented friends and they kind of did their thing with it. They built the furniture, they had the design aesthetic all mapped out for us and we just kind of let them run with it. So, you know, all props to them for making, taking what was an already very beautiful space, but making it even more beautiful, more inviting, more welcoming. Um, and I think that's a lot of the big, a lot of the reason why a lot of people are checking us out initially. It's to check out the space. Um, they did such a great job with the space. Um, but it is very challenging. It is a very large, long space. Um, I think I had never worked in a space that big. I never fed that many people at once. Um, doing, you know, three, three and a half turns on a 72 seat restaurant, um, is very challenging for us. We only have three cooks on the line and they, they kick ass every day. Um, so, you know, just, I think we really underestimated the distance and travel people have to walk in our space, front of house, especially having to move back and forth from the front to the back and how many steps and how long that takes was something that we did not take into account for when we were planning out our staffing, trying to figure out how many people we need to hire. Um, it's so interesting that you talk about the steps that the staff takes because to get food from the kitchen to that back room, that's part of what being a restaurant owner is about. But you don't really necessarily think about that in the beginning. You don't think about how turning tables and where you're going to hold people and where the where the bathrooms might be relative to the farthest table. It is such a beautiful space. Uh but it is gigantic, and I wondered if that was going to be uh, intimidating upon opening because the thing about your restaurant is you're very lucky. It's very busy all the time, but it's so big and it's so spread out that if you had 45 people seated, it might not look that full, Yeah, which can be kind of scary and feel problematic, right? Totally, totally, and that's something we discussed um, when we were coming up with our business plan. And 45 seated is good. It's like, good, That's yeah. really solid, you know? Yeah, you know, so fortunately, you know, we have like three distinct dining rooms. So, you know, we, we kind of have a plan, you know, when, you know, that would inevitably happen where, you know, and on the weekdays, you know, it's not as crazy as it is on the weekends for us. So, you know, we definitely have those times where it's only like 35, 40 people in the restaurant and it can feel kind of a little bit deserted. And that's always a bad look when you walk into a restaurant. So, you know, I think it's about, strategizing with the fronts, you know, we have a really great service manager who understands that, okay, if we only, if it's a slower night, maybe we don't seat everybody throughout the restaurant and all the three distinct dining areas. You know, he knows that, okay, well, we should try to seat everybody towards the front. So it, it creates a more lively, full atmosphere. Um, but yeah, it, it is, I cannot under, under, uh, overestimate how challenging it was to work in the space um, having such a large space exposes to a lot more problems. Um, and yeah, just the, all the different things that you don't think of um, in operating a space that large. Um, while we're blessed with a lot of space, we're cursed with a lot of space. When it comes to menu construction and plating, uh, does any of that natural light and those kind of bright color tones that you chose. You've got a lot of like pastel-y kind of colors mm -hmm. in the space, a lot of greenery, uh, which for me kind of mimics a lot of the, the plates, right? Like you always get a big 
plate of leafy greens and you can make your own kind of wraps and things like that. The plates are really beautiful. They're not overdone. Did you have the plating visualized before you came in for everything or was it at all inspired by uh, the space, the size, the kitchen? Right. Um, Are you talking about the plate where itself? No, like 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 your plating. plating? Yeah. Um, You know, I adhere to, you know, I I try to stress to the kitchen team about not making things too fussy and just keep respecting. You know, I I really feel um, myself and the kitchen team, we're just stewards of the food. We're not really inventing anything here. These are dishes that we all grew up eating, whether back home or in Vietnam. And we're not trying to reinvent the wheel. These are things that were already delicious to begin with. So it's really our job to take care of these dishes and put out the best possible version of this dish um, every single day. So that really drives about how we do our plating. I don't want to get things overly complicated or too designy or too chefy. Mm-hmm. Um, it should just be very rustic, look very clean. Um, I think we can find beautiness and just being a normal plate up. You know, it, these things are already very interesting to look at. Um, I don't see the need to fussy it up. So a lot of that is just driven by the cuisine itself. I didn't want to make it, like I said, too fussy. Do you have dishes on the menu where you've stretched very far away from their traditional, original orientation? Or is most most of the menu really rooted in sort of its authentic, original flavor profile? No, it's definitely all rooted in authentic Vietnamese flavors, flavor profiles, all the ingredients. Um, You know, obviously we don't have the same access to herbs, um, protein, seafood that you'll get in Vietnam. So that's where it's an opportunity for us to use what's around us here in New York, our accessibility to different types of proteins, um, but still creating dishes that if my mom walked in and I, that's what I always, that's like my baseline. If my mom walks in, is she going to feel comfortable eating this? You know, she's not the most adventurous eater. She really, you know, she eats Vietnamese food almost every single day. She has to be able to come in and be comfortable eating this and not be like, what, what the hell is this, Dennis? Um, you know, all, like, you know, everything that we put out, it's rooted in something that we grew up eating or that we've tasted. The economics of a restaurant in New York are just, they're pretty miserable, honestly. And you you said a couple minutes ago that uh, the space you found was out of your price range, but it had so many things going for it. Obviously, you guys made the decision to secure this space. Your partners uh, have an uh, existing restaurant Mm -hmm. where you were the chef, not a partner. Now you're a partner. I'm curious about the whole process of both logistically organizing yourself with them as becoming an owner and a partner. And also, uh, if you can speak at all to the financials of it, was it easier or harder to fundraise, get a bank loan, whatever you may have done, considering that they had a, another location that had 10 years under its belt? Oh, that definitely helped. Um, you know, restaurants are inherently a risky uh, venture. You know, I would not recommend anyone invest in a restaurant. Um, so, you know, being able to have people on your team that have exhibited competence and the ability to operate a restaurant in 10 years in New York City, which is no easy feat, um, definitely gets people's attention. And it definitely helped in getting the funding that we needed to open the restaurant. Um, We didn't take any bank loans. We took, um, you know, we reached out to our network of friends, family and extended friends and family. 
and were able to secure the money that we needed to open D&D. Um, you know, I think, you know, operating, creating a business, operating a business, you know, that whole setup, that could be many, many podcasts about how difficult and challenging it is. New York City does not make it easy to operate a business. Um, but, you know. It almost seems like they want you to fail, honestly. Yeah, <laughs> and especially for hospitality lately. Um, very challenging. The the enormity of what goes into the job. Obviously, you've had a totally separate career, but sometimes when when people ask me, I say that uh, I've had to learn so much about things that I never considered at all. I obviously knew that there would be cooking involved and that there would be uh, aspects of dealing with humans day-to-day, staff, customers, right? But I really didn't realize that I was going to have to read so much contracts, that I was going to have to deal with the city and permits, and that I'd be on the phone all the time with a lawyer. All these things that you didn't really plan for, right? Right. First part of this question is, did your first career help you at all for the sec for the second stage of of your professional career uh just being part of a professional office and how the tone and the kind of the cadence of a day yeah. is not the same as a restaurant and then also what were the things that blindsided you and caught you off guard when you became an owner mm, good question um definitely you know uh i'm an excel stud so you know i i learned that working in consulting, you know, I'm very familiar with the office products. So, you know, a lot of being a chef is inventory management, food costs. Um, yeah, you know, honestly, I don't cook that much as much as I, I wish I was cooking. A lot of my day is checking invoices, making sure everything gets entered in. Um, are our food costs on on track? Or, you know, the the management side of this is a whole other experience that um, I definitely think my career in consulting helped me, helped guide me along on that. Um, It definitely was very helpful. Now, there's a lot of things that I also, that did not translate very well. Managing a kitchen team as opposed to managing a set of of employees at at an office, totally different things. Um, There's different mindsets. There's different motivations on both sides. it's it's much more challenging managing a kitchen team, I feel like, than managing um, in a, in a nine to five job. So um, that I think that just the people management was a skill that you know obviously I did not have. You know, a whole an entire kitchen walked out on me. So, um, you know, that was something that is a learning curve, and I still struggle with on, on today. You know, it's something that we I, I hope myself and my partners. Um, acknowledge and realize that that's something that we need to get better at. As you enter into, you know, the, the next year, we're in 2019 at, uh, at your restaurant, what do you look forward to and what are you maybe dreading or what are you the most scared about? It could be maybe a labor law change. Obviously the, the minimum wage went up that affects business owners, but it could also be something totally personal, unrelated, maybe mm-hmm. directly to, to the fabric of the day to day at the restaurant. Yeah. You know, I mean, definitely aware of all the changing dynamics, um, within the hospitality industry. You know, I think the, the tip credit is now up for review and how that will impact front of house and our restaurant, um, you know, I, you know, I'm, I'm a, I'm a liberal in that sense of, you know, I support all these things. I want to pay everybody, 
you know, a living wage. I want to pay everybody as much as I possibly can. I want everybody to have health care. But like now being on the business side, how do we balance all of that stuff as well and the needs of the restaurant? That's, that's very challenging. That keeps me awake um, a lot. You know, and that's like the number one big stress point. It's not even necessarily, you know, the food definitely is, you know, a, a key part of it. But just operating this business and how where the hospitality industry is going to go um, in the next five to ten years, it's it's a little concerning. You know, I I wish we had opened this place ten years ago when things were a little bit different. Um, but we we were not, and we're in this day and age where you know, I don't know what's going to happen. So that that keeps me awake a lot at night. But you know, I'm also very you know, very optimistic in the sense that when I sit back and look at what we have and what we've accomplished in one year, um, you know, the, the restaurant is, it's, it's, it's busy. People are, people understand what we're trying to do. Um, you know, there's still a lot of things we have to work on, but the opportunity ahead of us is, is so bright, um, that, you know, I think we'll be able to weather any kind of challenge, um, that comes along with the business side of this, but it's going to take a lot of hard work. And I think it's, it's something that we're realizing, you know, as a team that this has unlimited potential and not everybody gets that kind of opportunity. Um, you know, so we should be, we should feel very fortunate and blessed that we get to come in on a daily basis and cook for people that really appreciate what we're doing in a beautiful space. And, uh, you know, for the most part, we're not all assholes at the restaurant, which, you know, it, it we have a pretty nice working environment, I'd like to think. So, um, you know, it's a lot to juggle, but, you know, I, I feel more optimistic than pessimistic. But, you know, definitely the, the changing economics of the restaurant industry and hospitality, food going up, it keeps me awake, for sure. You had a mentor many years ago, and you mentioned that at, at Psalm Bar, you went there for dinner, and you were inspired by the late night that Tianho was doing. Yep. I'm curious about now, you run and own and co-own your own restaurant. Is there anyone out there right now that you look to, it could be in New York, it could be in another city as either a mentor or inspirational, something that you've tasted or seen recently that you thought, I'm going to put that in the back of my mind, or I'm going to take that back to my own spot and, and maybe implement it somehow. Oh, like creative, (laughs) yeah. Creatively copying everyone. No, Uh, no, no. Like, uh, like something that you've, yeah, that you've seen that really like inspiration. Yeah. That turned the light bulb on. Uh, you know, I, I feel very blessed all the time, every day in that regard. Um, we There's a very nice community of um, Asian restaurants that are happening now. You know, Greenpoint itself is, um, its restaurant scene has um, grown quite considerably since we opened as well. So just the chefs around me that I see on a day-to-day basis and what they're doing um, really vo- motivates me. Um, you know, the guys over at Winsun, I really appreciate Josh and Trigg, they they make really really excellent food, and they're they're kicking ass. And now they're about to open their next spot. Um, you know, we have uh, my friend Justin down the block in Greenpoint, Oshimoko, him and his chef, what they're doing with Mexican food and the type of dining that they're bringing to Greenpoint. Um, just how polished it is, very aspirational. Um, you know, Polly G down the block from us as well, and what he's done with the slice shop. Um, you know, it's just watching the success of these friends and colleagues in the industry. Um, it keeps you motivated, keeps you pushing. You know, I, I want to be like these guys. I want, I want the next spot, you know, and that takes a lot of hard work, you know, and I think sometimes you forget about that in the minutia of the day to day of just unpacking boxes or doing your prep, um, that 
you know, it's going to take a lot of hard work to get where we want to get to and getting everybody on the same page um, and, and guiding the team to where we want to get to. Um, you know, those are things I pull from all these other restaurants and I mean, like, this is where we got to get to. What are we going to do about it? Do you have a uh, either written down or in your head a two, five year plan of where you might want things to go? Or are you more of a let things roll and deal with them as they come and react to them? I don't necessarily like to put like hard timelines on things. I don't get stressed out if like I missed that year goal or whatever. So I don't I don't do it in that way. I you know I definitely know that one restaurant's not going to be enough to feed feed the squad. Um, you know the dream is you know for me not necessarily to be like the best Vietnamese restaurant. It's about creating a a group where all these great people I'm working with now currently we can stay working together forever. You know as long as we're all passionate about Vietnamese food and do all these creative things in the Vietnamese space that um, I've seen done everywhere else, but haven't, has, has not been brought here to New York City yet. So the opportunity here is here. So, you know, there's no like one, two, five year plan, but, you know, we've, we'll, we'll have passed one year this year. You know, I think this year is now about, yeah, we got it open now. Let's really tighten things up. You know, let's get these systems in place. You know, we've got a working system, but we could always be doing a lot better. And, you know, really activating the space 100% of the time. Right now, we're only open for dinner, you know, and that's four hours on the weekdays and soon to be five hours on the weekends. Um, so, like, we've got this late night time. We've got this Monday that we're closed. We've got lunch. We've got brunch, which we haven't started. So, um, you know, for us, really, this year is about focusing on that, making D on D the best it can be. And then, yeah, starting to think about the next thing because, like I said, one's not enough to feed the squad, and we got a good squad. So um, I really want to keep working with these guys for as long as I can, and that means we got to do something else. Maybe that other thing could be brisket. You're you're a Texas guy. Tell me a little bit about your love relationship with brisket. What's up with uh, Lone Star? Well, I, I have some sad news for you, uh, Eli. Uh, it's going to be RIP for Lone Star. Um, I decided to close it up. You know, so we're going to end our run at Smorgasburg. Didn't and, disappoint a lot of people. <laughs> yeah, you know, I'm, I'm disappointed as well. You know, it's, that was a really magical time for me as well. You know, that was part of my cooking journey, you know, because yeah. after Anchoy, um, I went to do that. And I started doing the market hustle for six years. And that's catering, mobile food. And that was a whole, that's a whole, that's a totally different brain, part of your brain that you have to flex. Totally. As opposed to cooking in a restaurant. Um, so, it, you know. A lot of credit to Eric Demby and the staff over at the Brooklyn Flea because without their help and support um, that I, I received from them and their encouragement along the way, um, I would not be where I am here at D&D as well because a lot of that money that I, you know, I earned while working those shifts um, at those markets, you know, I was able to save up and that's what kind of helped see D&D for myself. So, um, you know, that was a really big part of my cooking career as well. But yeah, so you know, Lone Star, yeah, that it's done. It's just too much for me to manage. To, the 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 restaurant is one hundred percent consuming me, and I just felt like I wasn't giving the Lone Star any love or attention anymore. So I just decided that you know, it's it's done. Possible that we'll see a late night brisket pop up, maybe that that, in, that would be totally cool. Space. And um, you know, like I I really want to do something late night. Um, I really enjoyed all those late nights at Sambar when Tian Ho was cooking, and I love that vibe. I'd love to be able to bring that to, to Greenpoint. Um, it's just we just got to find the time and find the time for the cooks so that they can 
do their normal stuff, but then try to do a late night service. You know, I think that'd be, tr- but that's where I, you know, I think we could really do some fun, interesting things outside of just Vietnamese food. Um, we, we have such a beautiful loaded kitchen that it's, it's criminal that we're not using it to its full extent right now. Dennis, thanks so much for being here and uh, sharing your trajectory and hearing a little bit about your story. And obviously, congratulations on the restaurant. And I hope that the next year is even better than the first. Uh, Tell everybody listening uh, just the website and then also the address so that they can find you if they want to come by. Sure. D&D is at 68 Greenpoint Avenue. You can take the G train to Greenpoint Avenue. It's a block walk up. And the address of the website is dindi.nyc. Cool. Thanks so much. Thank you so much. And everybody, thanks for listening to another episode of The Line. You can join us every Tuesday at 11 a.m. for brand new episodes with chefs and restaurateurs here on Heritage Radio. Thanks for listening to the Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com forward slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows that you like. Tell your friends. And please, join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.